Blog Talk Radio. Rise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. A new day has dawned. All over the earth, men and women are arising. It's time for the sons of God to awake. It is a day of justice, recompense, Restoration, revival, and resurrection power. Xavier, pastor of New Wine Ministries, great to be with you today. Do you understand the implications that are tied to the great feast as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement? Today is the 11th day. It began last night at the setting of the sun, and that ended what we know in the Torah, in, in the Bible, as the highest holy day in the economy of Israel was a day that was foreshadowed for 1,500 years when under the old covenant, if you will, the high priest would go in once a year to the Holy of Holies with blood, with a rope tied around his leg, and he would go in, and if he dropped dead because that high priest was not worthy, uh, he would die, and they would drag him out because nobody else was permitted into the holiest place of all. And so we know that on the good side of this moment, the high priest would enter into a realm of something that God was foreshadowing, and that realm was the expiatory realm of uh, sacrifice, of offering for the sins of the people. We're going to get into this just a little bit more today, and I find it absolutely phenomenal what our faith is all about that God has provided an offering for the sins of the whole world. Imagine that. The sins of the whole world have been expiated. They have been atoned for. They have been taken away. And we rejoice 
because this is God's mercy. And I want to get into a few scriptures here. So I want to talk about the mercy seat. And if I get into the scriptures, let me share with you how many verses in the new covenant are actually uh, moving towards the mercy seat. Exodus 25, 17, the first time we hear about the mercy seat. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And then in Exodus 25, 18, And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work. Thou shalt make them in the two ends. Oh, got to get that little guy. In the two ends. Got him. Uh, in the two ends. Uh, in the two ends of the mercy seat. So, again, Exodus 25, 18. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. So cherubim, either side of that two, two and a half cubits by one and a half cubit uh, mercy seat, which is a golden slab. Uh, verse 19 goes on to say, and make one cherub on the one end and the other cherub on the other end, even of, the mer- even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And verse 20 goes on to say, And the cherubs, or the cherubims, shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubims be. Now, what a beautiful picture. They're looking at one another from across, and their wings are stretching over. Verse 21 says, And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. Verse 22 says, And there I will meet with you, and I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give you in commandment unto the children of Israel. Okay, we stop right there as far as Exodus 25. Now, every single time the word mercy seat is used, uh, comes from the definition, the kaporeth. The mercy seat is known in the Hebrew as the kaporeth, the kaporeth. And here's what it means. The mercy seat is the place of atonement. It is the golden plate of propitiation on which the high priest sprinkled the seat, the mercy seat, seven times on the day of atonement, symbolically reconciling Jehovah or Yehovah and his chosen people. So Aaron, the first high priest, would take the blood of bulls and goats. He would take the blood of a sacrifice. He would go into the Holy of Holies once every year. He would sprinkle the mercy seat with the cherubims overshadowing it seven times, seven being a symbolic number of completion and perfection. And he would sprinkle that mercy seat. Now, the first time they did this, okay, 1,500 year rehearsal. In other words, from the first time in the first year that the mercy seat had been built and constructed and put into the Ark of the Covenant, that Ark of the Covenant being very powerful, well, for 1,500 years, this was an ongoing yearly 
rehearsal looking forward to the fullness. And we know that the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate offering that God gave was not a bull or a goat. It was a lamb. And we know that that lamb was his son. It was Yeshua. And we all know this, okay? This is very clear. But it's marvelous that for 1,500 years that there was this ongoing yearly high holy day in the economy of Israel that was foreshadowing a time when there would be no more necessity for the blood of bulls and goats, that there would be a one-time, end-time sacrifice for sins that would come through the body, the offering of the blood of Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Now, it goes on to talk about the mercy seat as the slab of gold on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which measured two and a half by one and a half cubits. On it and part of it were the two golden cherubim, we just read about that, facing each other, whose outstretched wings came together above the constituted uh, and, and constituted the throne of God. So that was the throne of God, the mercy seat, okay, where God would meet with his people above it. Now, the actual definition for the kapareth, or the mercy seat, was a lid used only of the cover of the sacred ark, okay, the sacred ark. And then the deeper Hebrew word, the primitive root, all right, is to cover, uh, specifically with bitumen, figuratively, here's the meaning of the mercy seat, to expiate or condone, to placate or cancel, to appease, to make an atonement, to cleanse, to disannul the judgment, to forgive, to be merciful, to pacify, to pardon, to purge away, to put off, to make reconciliation. So what we know in simplicity is that the mercy seat that God instituted, that God created, foreshadowing a higher mercy seat, which we'll talk about in just a moment, on this earth, in the economy of Israel, there would be a mercy seat. And everywhere they went, that Ark of the Covenant, Uh, was the most powerful force known to Israel because God's presence was contained in it. And so what we know is that every year there'd be this high holy day, this very sobering reality where the last year of the sins of the whole nation of Israel would be weighed in the balance and the high priest would go in with the mercy blood that God intended, that God instituted, that God instructed. And in that sacrifice, there would be an appeasement so that the wrath of God would not break out upon the people, okay, when this was done properly. And so this was a high holy day. Now, this is very powerful because on that day, all the Israelites would stay in their tents, wherever they were. They would let that high holy day pass because all the judgment that was due them, on that day, the judgment was expiated. And that word to expiate, by the way, has a definition. And expiation simply means an atonement for guilt or sin. Okay? Their sins must be expiated, atoned for, by sacrifice. Okay? Uh, Expiatory simply speaks of being able to make atonement or expiation. It was offered by way of expiation. Expiatory sacrifices. Okay, and it also is dealing with their sins 
that were atoned for, a redress, okay? So that is the definition there. So we have this amazing reality in the economy of Israel known as the highest holy day, Yom Kippur, in the sacrifice for sin. Now, for 1,500 years, they were looking forward to a greater fulfillment. So we know that was rehearsal. It was a type and shadow. Now we bounce on over to the book of Hebrews. Okay, I want to go to Hebrews, and let's go to, um, let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. We'll start there. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 5, and we'll start there. Well, let's go to verse 1, Hebrews 9, 1. Give a little context to it. So now we're in the New Covenant, and the writer of the book of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 9.1, Then verily the first covenant, speaking of the Mosaic Covenant, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary or the holy place. And after the second veil the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. That's what we call the holy of holies. So you had the outer court, and then from the outer court, the priest would enter into the holy place, and then there was another veil where only the high priest would go once a year into the holy of holies. Now, verse 4 goes on to say, and about this holy of holies, that it had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant, in verse 5 says, and over it, over the mercy, over the, the ark, okay, and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. So in other words, it appears that that, mercy, that ark of the covenant was a box. It was two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits, and there was a lid on it, which means there was an empty box, and in the box, were the miraculous covenants, the two covenants of the Ten Commandments, uh, Aaron's rod that budded, and also the, uh, what, what else was in there? Uh, the tables of the covenant, the manna, okay, the supernatural acts of God. So there were these profound acts in the ark, in the box, and then upon that was the lid, and upon that golden lid, now you had the cherubim, the mercy seat, the atoning place, and so the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about this, and then he goes on to say this. And this is where you and I need to really get this. He says in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 9 concerning these things, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. So that's the holy place, not the holy of holies, where the ark is of the covenant and the cherubim, but in the holy place, okay? And they were doing the work of the service of God. Verse 7, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. Verse 8, the Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. In other words, until Yeshua came to this earth and took his blood into the holiest place of all in heaven, okay, there was no access for the people to go into the Holy of Holies. It was cut off. There was only one high priest representing 
symbolically the high priest, Yeshua, Hamashiach, our high priest, but these other high priests, according to the lineage of Aaron, would go in once a year. And while that was happening on the earthly tabernacle, the earthly tent, the earthly system of worship at that time, um, that way was cut off from the people. So the people would always be outside, and only the high priest would go in looking forward to a greater work. Now, it says in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 9, which was a figure, so the earthly tabernacle was only a figure, it was a type and a shadow, for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect. Aaron was the one doing the service in the first place. Well, even the offerings that he was giving could not make him perfect as pertaining to the conscience, okay? So even though this great ceremony was going on, the blood was being taken in, the rope around the foot, the access to the mercy seat, and all those great miraculous deeds of God that were in the box, if you will, well, he's bringing the blood of bulls and goats, but it could not make his conscience perfect before God. That's what it's saying. So verse 10 goes on to say, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. All right, the greatest reformation happened 2,000 years ago when Yeshua came to the earth. We know that as well. It says in verse 11, Hebrews 9:11, but Christ being come, he came, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, what was the greater tabernacle? His own body, right? Neither did he come, in verse 12, by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, the holy of holies, having obtained eternal redemption for us. He's talking to the Jewish people in the first place, okay? For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your, my, conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the new covenant or the new testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance for where a testament is, there also necessity be the death of the testator. So what's going on here? What's the writer of Hebrews actually saying? The book of Hebrews is so awesome because it's a letter to the Hebrews, the scattered Israelites, the Jewish people, okay? And these people had come to faith in Christ, but they were being tempted to go back to Judaism. So this whole letter was written to show the preeminence of the Messiah, Yeshua. And in this particular chapter, he's showing his preeminence as the high priest. He's showing the preeminence of his blood as compared to the blood of bulls and goats. 
And what he's saying is that the blood of bulls and goats was only a temporary covering for an atonement, but it was going on for 1,500 years. They had to keep going every year, year after year after year after year. But when Yeshua came and he shed his blood, that he took his blood as the high priest, not the blood of anybody else, his own blood, he took that in the resurrection into the very holy of holies, the presence of God, where God dwells, and he said, I'll meet with you on earth above the tabernacle. So now Yeshua takes his blood into heaven, into God's throne room, and he offers his blood as a testimony, as an atonement to expiate the sins of the nation of Israel once and for all. There would never be another year of having to kill bulls and goats, blood. Okay, and that's why in 70 AD, the entire temple worship was wiped out. He brought it to a finality by allowing the destruction of the temple because it no longer regarded the mind and will and intent and purpose of God. In other words, that earthly temple, that earthly tabernacle where they were sacrificing, it was the Jewish people rejecting the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Yeshua, the Messiah, they continued on in their tabernacle, their earthly temple, sacrificing animals. Many of them had come out of that system. These Hebrews were coming out of that system, realizing we don't need that system any longer. That system of worship around the tabernacle, the temple, the yearly sacrifices, the high priest going into the Holy of Holies once a year, that it was already fulfilled. So they began to come out, but they were being push to go back under that, right, to get back into that. And so in 70 AD, God just said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to allow Titus and the Roman armies to go into Jerusalem. They're going to absolutely desecrate that temple and destroy it. And it's going to be a total wipeout. And for over 1,900 years, to this very day, there has not been the temple to bring forth the sacrifices of the animals in the way that it was always done prior to Yeshua. And so the ultimate rebellion to Israel today is trying to get that temple up again so they can reinstate the animal sacrifices. Again, this is total rebellion against God's way of doing things. But for 1,900 and plus years, temple worship has been obliterated, and God allowed that to happen to show the people of this earth to the Jew first and then to the Gentile that there is an expiation that has already been made. There is an atonement that has already been made. You don't have to go back to temple worship and shed the blood of the heifer and the bulls and the goats and the pigeons and the turtle doves. You don't need to do it anymore. It is finished. Is what Jesus said on the cross because he knew that his offering of his blood would satisfy forever the wrath of God, that all of the wrath of God that would be displayed upon the people, upon all nations after Israel, it was satisfied through the atoning blood. Now, the problem is for the nations that have rejected Yeshua's sacrifice, the wrath of God is still upon the nations. The wrath of God, the judgment, the condemnation that began 6,000 years ago, 
remains upon the mind of man. Romans chapter 5, condemnation upon all the human race. No religion can satisfy. No religion, no philosophy can atone for the sins of Israel or the nations of the earth. Only Yeshua. So the rejection of Yeshua allows for the death of Satan, the condemnation, the guilt, the shame, and all of that evil and wrath, because God's going to visit the wrath of man's sin if they don't receive the atonement that was made for them. In other other words, the only way out from the judgment, the only way out from the condemnation, the only way out from the guilt and the shame and the wrath is through the door of Christ by accepting his sacrifice, his atonement. This is very important to us, and this is what God did. There is no need for another temple, for the temple of God is in the heart of men. There is no temple on earth that is going to satisfy the purpose of God. The only thing that the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem is going to do is fulfill further Bible prophecy that the Antichrist will actually go into that temple because it is a temple of rebellion. It is not a holy thing. It is a blasphemy against God. It is a rejection against God. And in this final generation, where the Jewish people are pressing for their temple, it's going to seem so good and so right to so many that are deceived and don't understand. God doesn't dwell in a tabernacle made with hands anymore. He dwells in his temple. We are the habitation of God, all believers around the world. So the atonement has been made. Yeshua brought his blood to the Father as a lamb, and he laid that blood on the altar of the tabernacle, of his presence. He brought his blood and brought it to the mercy seat, the mercy of God, the mercy seat. Let me tell you what the word mercy seat is in the Hebrew. I told you what it was in the the Greek. I'm going to show you what's in the Greek. In the Hebrew, I I showed you about it. But in the Greek, the word mercy seat, used one time, by the way, or no, four times, uh, is the hilestereon, the hilestereon, okay? Pretty powerful word there, a $3 word, hilestereon in the Greek. It relates to an appeasing or expiating, having placating or expiating force, okay? It's expiatory. It's a means of appeasing or expiating a propiti- it's a propitiation, all right? Then it goes on to explain it was used as the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, which was sprinkled with the blood of the expiatory victim on the annual Day of Atonement, this rite signifying that the life of the people, the loss of which they had merited by their sins, was offered to God in the blood as the life of the victim, and that God, by this ceremony, was appeased and their sins expiated, hence the lid of expiation or the propitiatory sacrifice. Talks about a victim, the mercy seat. The definition, again, expiatory, it's an atoning victim. It's the lid of the ark, the mercy seat. The most important part of that definition is that it has the placating or expiating force. There is a force of God in the atonement of Christ, in the atoning blood sacrifice. The victim in this atonement is the Lamb, Yeshua, the Christ. 
He is the victim. His blood was spotless. There was no sin in his blood. So the atoning sacrifice of the Father is when Christ took his blood and put it on that mercy seat. So how does God see you and I who have fled to him in faith and believing? How does he recognize? How does he see us? He, God, sees you and I through the blood. He does not see everything else. He sees us through the atonement. He sees us innocent, guiltless, shameless. He sees us totally forgiven. He accepts us. He receives us. This is the best news that the world will ever know. The mercy of God, the undeserved, unmerited, unearned mercy of God that we are forgiven. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's so true. And God's mercy upon people like you and me, God's mercy upon undeserving sinners. This was his intention from the beginning of the world. On the fourth day of creation, God had the day of atonement in his mind, just like he had the day of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and everything else. This is all a part of God's economy. Now, why my God, 1,500 years of rehearsal, rehearsal, rehearsal. The Jews were looking forward. Then the day finally comes, and there he is, the prophesied one in the Old Testament from Genesis through all the covenants and even the Mosaic covenant. He's the one prophesied of, and there he is on the cross 2,000 years ago. He is the, the victim, the Lamb of God, pouring out his blood before the nation. And some people got it, many people didn't get it, and some people got it afterward by the preaching of the gospel, but many people didn't. And so there was this contradiction. Those who believed and had faith in what Yeshua did, they stopped going to the temple with their turtle doves. They understood that their sins were forgiven, they've had an eternal atonement, and that by faith they could walk into the newness of life and be enlightened with the oil of the Holy Spirit so that their lamp would burn as a light-bearing vessel. And this is what began 2,000 years ago. And in our generation, God's mercy seat is still in view. But we're not looking forward to any other mercy of blood. We're looking back at a finished work. The difference between Israel and us today is they were looking forward to a finished work. We're looking back at what was done. We celebrate the Day of Atonement. We know that the atonement has already been made for those who believe. It's, it's in full force. In other words, when we believe, when you believe, when I believe, when we believe, the force of the mercy seat goes into action to transform and change us from the inside out. That mercy blood changes our mind. It cleanses our conscience. It clears us of all guilt, shame, and condemnation. There's not a greater atonement. There's no other expiatory propitiation. There is no greater work of God that is going to come. We're either going to get it now by faith or we're going to let it wait. There's no force in the atoning blood sacrifice without faith, without bringing that force of mercy and blood to atone for our sins. Without faith, it doesn't work. 
It's kind of like Israelites every year going through it, going to church, oh, I'm forgiven a day, and then repeat, go back, do the same thing. Listen, that system is over. And we've all got to catch up with the reality that it's done. It's over. When Jesus said it is finished, I'm telling you, he brought everything past him, behind him. He brought everything to consummation. He brought all the sins, all the judgments, all the wrath, all the punishment of every little, tiny, minute sin. He brought it all, and he took the price and paid the price, and he took the punishment. He took the wrath. He took the judgment. He took it on himself, and he said, here it is. And when it was all coming on him, and he was tasting the sins of the whole world and partaking of the death of of, of that judgment, he cried out, it's done. It's over. It's over. But the unbelieving Jewish people kept going. And the people that were coming to faith in Christ, they were encountered by the unbelieving Jews that just could not believe that that's over. My God, it can't be over. And so they kept telling him, no, you got to come under the law of Moses. you got to come under the law of Moses. And some of them were tempted to go back, and that's why the book of Hebrews was written. And even in the Gentile churches, if you will, the Jewish people that were believers in Yeshua, they kept insisting, well, you got to come back under this. There was this constant attempt to go back under something that was so finished, it wasn't even supposed to be part of their vocabulary anymore. But we came into a brand new covenant. What is it saying? What is the new covenant saying biblically? You're forgiven. Your shame, guilt, condemnation, punishment that belongs on you, that the devil who accuses you day and night before the throne of God, the devil, the slanderer, the accuser, is constantly bearing down, reminding you of your sin. But when the true blood of Yeshua makes the atonement upon the altar of our conscience, he no longer has any opportunity to condemn us. But our conscience is vulnerable to the accusation and the force of slander when we are not applying the force of the atoning sacrifice. If we're thinking there's some other way, some other system, something I got to do, something I got to work out. No, none of this has to do with that. This atonement was once and for all, and it was a work that no man on earth deserved. It was the, it was the mercy of God. Now that we've received the atonement, we get filled with the Holy Spirit. We're new creations in Christ Jesus. Our conscience is clear. Now we learn to live in the economy of God's kingdom. And we learn that the sins that we committed, we would never want to do them again. We don't even want them in our conscience. Now, the full force of the blood of the atonement will drive out every force of demonic spirit in your soul. I don't care what you're going through, what your mind is like, what condition is when you and I apply the blood of the atoning sacrifice of Yeshua, the force of that blood will drive out every demon and your conscience will come clear and it will become peaceful and the accusation and the slander of the devil will no longer have any power or force against your life. You'll never put your face in, like we do with our little dogs when we train them, right? They poop on the floor, and you take their head, and you stick it in there and say, no, no, no. No, the devil's not going to put our head in the poop anymore of our past sins when we apply the faith and the force of the blood of Yeshua. Come on. Is that not the greatest 
news in the world. Now, sir, listen to me. Whoever you are, whoever you are that got into my computer long ago, I've known you've been in my computer long ago. I got news for you. The blood is there for you, too. You see, I, I got, I've got it figured out. We've known this for a long time, that there are other forces operating in our computer system because we've been monitored because of the word that we preach. And it's okay. We've never stopped. We never hid. We never threw it away. We have nothing to hide. Everything that we do, wide in the open, even when we're off the air, midnight seasons, you're not going to find anything in this computer system or in this man that was against the word of God. So I want to tell you, though, whoever you are, the blood of Jesus Christ is the atonement for your sin. And there's a force of that blood that will cancel the satanic in your thinking and set you free. I'm telling you, there. you want deliverance? You want deliverance? There's only one way for deliverance. It is the blood of of Jesus. My wife, Patricia Joy Xavier, wrote all about it in her book called Deliverance, the Christian Bill of Rights. When over nearly 40 years ago, she had an epiphany, a revelation by the Spirit of the Lord about the atoning blood of Jesus and what it's really. See, people, you know what religion is? Religion is a bunch of people going to church, sitting down, and being beat up by demons in their thinking and in their head because they can't sit still because their mind is still under the curse because they haven't really taken the blood and the force of the blood and brought it to the conscience and allowed it to atone and take the force of that sacrifice to get rid of all the junk. So religion is a bunch of people sitting in church, whether it's a billion-dollar structure or a little warehouse, whatever. Whenever people come together and their conscience is still not cleansed, that's religion. It's that they are going through the motions of ceremony, but have never tasted the liberty and the expiatory salvation and freedom, what the blood really means. That blood has the ability to speak. Listen, it says that the blood of Yeshua speaks better things, right, than that of Abel. So the blood speaks. Where does it speak the loudest? The blood at the, on the throne of God speaks of mercy and forgiveness and healing. So that blood speaks to the devil. And it says to the devil, back off. That's what it says. The blood says, you're a liar. You're defeated. You cannot hold me accountable for anything I've ever done. You back off. That's what the blood says. And there's a force to that blood that when Satan sees or hears that blood from a believer against him, he flips out and he flees and screams, the blood, they got it. You see, he doesn't want you to get the blood. He doesn't want you to know the blood. He doesn't want you to know the force of that blood. He wants you to play church. He wants you to go and sit in a room, hear a, hear a sermon, but no force to the sermon because it has no sanctifying power because the people haven't had faith to believe in the blood. Hold on one second here. Hello, Brother Araldo. I'm good. I'm on the radio right now, and I'll be done in about 20 minutes. What can I do to help you? <laughs> uh, that's okay. We'll, we'll work it out. I'll be there in about an hour. 
All right. God bless you, man. Thanks. Okay, so that's Geraldo. Man, for those of you that are coming up to the Feast of Tabernacles, are you kidding me? Now, listen, that's a good segue. Here it is. Four days after the Day of Atonement, right, then God planned this great feast, this great feast. And it's called the Feast of Tabernacles. What do you think it's about? It's about you and I coming into true unity. And I love the definition I recently heard about unity. True unity is when you're ready to die for somebody who doesn't deserve it. Ah, To give your life for someone that doesn't deserve it. That's true unity, okay? So think about the economy of God for just a moment. The force of the blood on the Day of Atonement emancipated the people from that strangulation of guilt, shame, and condemnation. And then four days later, they'd run off into the great Feast of Tabernacle to celebrate in cheerful celebration the work that had been done on their behalf. When we gather together in three days here in Northwest Arkansas and and, and in Jerusalem and in the islands of the sea and all over the world, where brethren gather together to celebrate the feast, it should be the most cheerful feast on the planet because each individual has humbled themselves and come to a position of knowing that what their sins were, what they've confessed, and what has been made atonement for. And when the expiatory blood works in the conscience of the people, Can you imagine, can you imagine people, whether they be 100 or 500 or 1,000 or 10,000, each one of them cleared in their conscience in a spirit of unity and rest and joy coming together to celebrate the Father who was in the Son reconciling the world unto himself? Can you imagine When brethren dwell together in unity, there he commands the blessing. You see, the whole world has access to the Father, to his presence, through the blood of his Son. And it amazes me that New Agers, occultists, Satanists, witches, warlocks, spellbinders, whoever, politicians... I'll put them in the same boat, right? It amazes me how the whole world can access their creator and that through Satan's deception, he blinds the minds of those who do not believe from the awesome experience we could be having with the true and living God. Wow. Are you kidding me? The God of the Bible is the God that sacrificed his son, himself, his substance, as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile? So what's the question? Is your conscience clear? You know, I go back to Hebrews chapter 9, and it talks about this new covenant And I love this in verse 16, because this is valid for you and I. 
For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So we have a new testament, but the testator has to die in order for it to go into force. Listen to what it says. For a testament is of force. There's that word again. It's of force. And let's look at that word force here. It's the bebios. And the word bebios literally means stable, steadfast, firm, sure, trusty. All right? So the bebios, the force, the, the New Testament, is a force, or a testament is a force after men are dead. So if I make a testament for my daughters to receive an inheritance, it won't, get, it won't have any force until I die, which isn't going to happen because we're going to be alive and remaining to see the Lord return. So we'll just bless along the way. Now, a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator lives, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Okay? For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. So we're going back to the Mosaic Covenant, right? And he said, moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So now the writer says this, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, the earthly tabernacle, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with the blood of others in the Old Testament, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away, to put away, to put away. Let's look at the word to put away. The phrase there at the aces is to put away means abolition or to abolish. It means a disannulling, a rejection. A cancellation. So listen carefully now. So, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world has he appeared 2,000 years ago to abolish, to put away, to cancel sin. What is he abolishing? Sin. He canceled it by the sacrifice of himself. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. My God. And, verse 27, as it is appointed unto men once to die. We're all appointed once to die. But after this, the judgment. Now, that's interesting because there are going to be those alive and remaining at the coming of the Lord 
who will not taste death. That's a mystery, but we'll talk about that another time. But as we've seen for 6,000 years, the point of Mendeman wants to die, except for Elijah and Enoch. They didn't die either, by the way. Um, after this, the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, those who believe, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Wow. All of this requires faith. Here's how it really should work. When faith comes to our hearts in what we are studying on the atonement, it's over. The sin issue is over. The sin issue is over. I want to ask you a question. How did Jesus walk on this earth before his father? In intrepidation? Oh, I better not make a mistake. Oh, no. He walked fully free from sin. He was tempted in every way, but did not sin because it wasn't his nature. He had a relationship with the Father, like you do. He had a relationship with the Father, like you do. And he walked before the Father on earth, wanting to bring the Father's heart to the world, to bring the Father's nature to the world, to bring the Father's spirit to the world, to bring the express image of the Father into the earth, and to shine it forth and to reveal it and manifest it before the eyes of the world. Jesus did not walk in fear, walk on eggshells, in trepidation, but he didn't walk in sin either. He didn't walk in selfishness and pride and the human nature. He didn't. But why did he come to this earth and walk before the Father the way he did before the eyes of the world? Because in the intended purpose of the Father, those of us who are born again have a new nature. And out from that new nature, we walk with God as atoned for vessels. We don't live before him guilty anymore for what we did. We're strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit not to do what we once did. And the more we apply the force of that atoning blood to our conscience, the devil can't accuse us anymore. And when he tries to put thoughts in our head about evil things, we reject that by the force of the blood. In other words, Jesus walked as the firstborn of a new creation species. You and I have been born again into Christ, and therefore we have the legal right to live as he lived. Religion says you have to live in condemnation, guilt, and shame. You have to remember your past. You have to walk before God on eggshells because he might crush you. You have to, you have to, you have to. And yet, that's not the truth of what Christ accomplished. What Christ accomplished is what the unbelievers say, no, no, no. What did he accomplish? Your liberty, your freedom. It's all throughout the whole New Testament. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free. Sin has no longer dominion over you. Sin is no longer your master. I mean, it goes on and on and on. 
about the freedom from the power of sin in our lives. And yet there are preachers that insist that we have to live out of the human nature. We're all going to sin. We're always going to sin. That is not the truth. Don't think for one moment that your born-again spirit and your renewed and sanctified personality is a sin against God. God made you the way that he made you for a reason. Stop trying to be something that religion wants you to be and be who God made you to be without sin. Why isn't that accepted in the ecclesia today? Because there's still a light shining, but it hasn't dawned on many hearts. There's a day star rising in our hearts, a wisdom and understanding. We have to come to this, and if there's ever going to be a reviving, if there's ever going to be uh, a, a time of harvest of the souls of men, the ecclesia better start walking in the fullness of the light and stop being this, this cheap bait just to get people to go to heaven one day. It's not about going to heaven. It's about saving the soul from the penalty of death and emancipating the soul from the power of sin and sin's consequences through the work of Jesus Christ. People don't want to talk about this. I mean, hungry saints do. Hungry saints do. So the purpose of the atonement was to prepare the people for the celebration. I want to ask you a question. Did you take even two minutes? Did you take two minutes in the last 10 days to go before God for introspection to see where your heart is, not looking for sin as much as looking for the atoning blood upon the altar of your heart and conscience. And then if sin was revealed in you, if we sin, we have a propitiation, an atonement. First John, right? If any, I write unto you little children that you sin not, but and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The atonement was made, right? So if there, if there was sin found in our hearts, did we confess it? And were we forgiven? And are we now walking in the liberty because we're not waiting for some event? We've confessed with a heart of repentance. I don't want to do that. And we're clean, getting that cleaned up by the Spirit of the Lord in the operation of sanctification. Well, think about it. If we spent just a moment with God in the realm of getting connected to the atonement, the force of Christ's blood working in our lives, how are we going to show up at the feast? Joyful, appreciative, thankful, happy. I mean, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, this is the Father's heart. Now, there's an ultimate, you see, Feast of Tabernacles is a rehearsal for the ultimate ingathering. See, it's also known as the Feast of Ingathering. And we know that at the end of the age, after the tribulation, he's sending his angels and they're going to gather together his elect. The gathering together is the ingathering. It is connected to the Feast of Tabernacles, which on earth is a type and shadow of the ultimate ingathering of the tabernacle of God. Each one of us are spiritual stones built into a spiritual house. We are the habitation. So we gather together as a rehearsal, as a type and shadow of a future event that's going to happen among those who have received the atonement. It's all about the atonement. It affords a happy now, 
and in the future, a hope that transcends anything on this temporary plane of life. And it's for you, not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, not for any reason at all, except God so loved the world that he gave his victim, his own son, to shed blood to make atonement for your sins and mine. Whoever you are, enemy, adversary, like, don't like, whoever you are, the atonement was made for you. God loves you. And through his atonement, he has an eternal purpose for your existence. Receive the atonement, receive the forgiveness, and then forgive yourself and make sure you forgive everybody else. And the word forgive is to release and let go. And we're coming into a season of the Shamita, the release. There's so much connected to these things. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? Hate somebody? Hold a grudge against somebody? Think somehow that you're better than somebody else? Folks, you know if you have a true apprehension of the cross and the blood and the grace and the mercy of God, there's nobody better than anybody. We're all set in the body as it pleases the Lord, but the only preeminent one member in the body is the head, Jesus. He will always be preeminent. This idea that somebody's better than someone else is a satanically inspired thought. Oh, I feel justified because I'm better than that person. None of us deserve anything. I wanted to tell you two stories today before getting off the air. Maybe they'll help, maybe they won't. It's kind of a personal journey for me. Just two quick stories. Nearly 30 years ago, let's get accurate, let's say about 29 years ago, okay? I was 19 years old. I was a brand new believer. I had really had an experience with the Lord. It was beautiful. An experience with God in my bedroom. I got born again. I got saved by grace through faith. I had an experience with the presence of God. And I remember I didn't know anything. I mean, nothing. I was just starting to pick up a Bible and even look at it. But I remember one day I was kneeling down at, at a couch, and there was this big bay window in Rancho Bernardo, California, my Uncle Frank's house. And outside the bay window, you could see all of Rancho Bernardo, and there was this uh, mountain that had a cross on it. And, and this particular day was kind of a cloudy, rainy day. And um, I was kneeling down, and I was praying. I have no idea what I was praying. But I remember looking up. I could, my eyes would open, and I'd see the mountain, and there was a beautiful cross. Lake Hodges. It was right by Lake, Lake Hodges. And um, I went back into prayer, and I'm praying. I remember opening my eyes. The mountain was in perfect, clear view. But the cross was gone. I remember thinking, wow, that's really strange. And I went back to prayer, and I'm praying, and I opened my eyes again. There it was. 
There's the cross. Wow, that's interesting. I closed my eyes again, praying. I opened my eyes. The cross was gone again. It was cut. The mountain, perfect. It was way out there. But perfect view of the mountain, cross, gone. I prayed again. Whenever I was praying, opened my eyes, there was the cross. I got off my knees. I said, this is weird. What is that? I walked to the back of the house. Now I'm looking at Black Mountain from the other side of the house, and I'm just listening. Like, what is that? And I heard God say to me, there are going to come times in your life that you're not going to see me. You're not going to hear me. You're not going to feel me. But I'm always going to be there just like that cross. You can't see it, but nobody took it away. It was covered by a cloud. And then the cloud would move and you would see it. It was always there. You see, for me, that meant volumes. And then God told me all those years ago, this was going to be part of my journey. I'm not always going to feel him, not always going to see him. And I'm one of the most dependent men on the planet. I mean, if I don't get a touch from God, I get, I'm out of whack is the reality. I just, I'm dependent. But he was saying to me, your faith is going to have to let you know I'm always there. And the clouds of obscurity, the clouds of adversity, the clouds that are going to come with the storms, the violence, the battles, the wars, sometimes you're just not going to see it. You're not going to feel it. You're not going to hear it. But you just stay to my word. You press in. Those seasons will be times of growing up your faith. You know, that has stayed with me for 39 years. I'm thinking 29 years. I've been a pastor for 29 years. That happened 39 years ago. 39. I'm 58 years old. I was 19 years old when that happened. 39 years ago, God gave me something. Last night, he reminded me of it again. He reminded me, I'm with you. I'm with you. The next story in my personal journey that happened, brand new Christian, 19 years old, didn't have a pastor I knew of. I didn't even know these things. But Paul Carroll was to be my pastor, which I didn't know. He was being called into the ministry. He didn't even know. But he was a dear friend. And one day in San Diego, he took me to a home of a family in San Diego, and there was a missionary there, and he wanted me to meet this missionary. I didn't even know what a missionary was. So Paul and I drove over to this house. It was a nice little house, and met this man. He was from South Africa. He had one arm missing. He was a short little man. Remember, he had glasses. I could vaguely see his face 39 years ago. And we had the introduction, and uh, we had a little chat. And all of a sudden, Paul and I sat down on the couch, and this man, this little short man with one arm missing, the missionary from South Africa, starts walking around the house praying in this language I'd never heard before. And I, my eyes are wide open, and I'm looking, and I'm watching. He's praying 10 minutes. As I just kept walking and praying and walking and praying. I'm thinking, what am I doing here? What is this? I'm just kind of walking and praying. Pastor, uh, Paul sitting next to me and just watching this. 
And all of a sudden, this short little man with one arm spun around and he pointed at me with his one arm. He pointed at me and he said, you need to make a covenant with God. And that was it. Conversation was over. Hello, goodbye. Da 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 da. Well, I went back to the house, and again, this is a different house at a different time, but there's a couch, and I'm on my knees before the couch, again, looking out a bay window. And I'm praying, and I remember saying to God, I've been reading my Bible now, and I remember saying, God, I don't hardly even know what a covenant is, but I did read about David and Jonathan, how they entered into a covenant, how David gave to Jonathan what was his, and Jonathan gave to David what was his. And I said, God, the only thing I know about covenant is what's mine is yours, and what yours is mine. And that man said, I need to make a covenant with you that you're initiating. And I said, but I don't really have anything to give to you. But my life, And I remember that day making a covenant with God that he instituted, he initiated. And I remember saying, okay, God, from this day forward, what's mine is yours, which isn't much. And what yours is mine. And I remember sealing the covenant with the blood of Jesus, a blood covenant. I learned a lot about covenant after that. And I entered into a covenant 39 years ago. Through Jesus Christ. And I was reminded of that early this morning as well, around 2 o'clock this morning. I was up before the Lord praying, and he's reminded me of these things. And how powerful at times in my life when the hardest of times came, I'm in covenant with God. And I have watched for 39 years what God has done in my life. How he saved me from being a drug addict, from generational bloodline curses, from being a wreck. How he's blessed my life with a gifting and anointing to preach and teach the word of God. A kid that went to seven different high schools and never graduated got hold of the Bible and how God's gift and grace and anointing enabled me to teach without going to seminary or schools. Never. Just watched how he just gave it. He just kept putting what's his into my life. And he made sure I always had a nice house. I have a beautiful wife. I have a great everything. I mean, and and he took my mess and he turned it into a message because of this covenant. Why do I share that with you? There's got to be areas of your life, moments in your life where you had a God encounter. And that God encounter is intended by God. It's like the memorial stones that they used to put up in the Old Testament. Remember, put these stones here so they'll remember. And these memorial events in your walk with God that are real. I remember, as I said earlier, the very first sermon I ever heard in my life was by by Billy Falling at the Escondido Faith Center in Escondido, California, 19 years old again, first sermon, You're going to climb one mountain. You're going to see the glory. You're going to come down the mountain. There's going to be another mountain. You're going to be climbing mountains your whole life. In other words, you're going to go from one level of glory to another, from one level of strength to another, from one level of faith to another. You're going to go from glory to glory, strength to strength, faith to faith. In other words, you're going to be journeying the rest of your life until you get to Mount Zion. 
and you're never going to stop. This is the first sermon. And this has been my life journey, mountain climbing, high experiences in God, and then low valley experiences. And then the journey of going up again and then coming down again. This is my life. And all of these divine encounters with God are strength to my soul when the world is caving in, when the enemy is pressing hard. When all of it is coming, the accuser, the slanderer, the accusation, all the ill will of the devil, when it's all going on, my God, if I didn't know that God was with me, if I didn't know that I had a covenant, a God-keeping covenant, if I didn't know that, you know, this is just part of the journey, if I didn't know those things, it would be really difficult to stay the course. For the enemy has done everything in his power to knock me off the course. But God has kept me because of his faithfulness to the covenant. And I want you to know something. The atonement that we've been talking about most of the morning is the blood that seals your covenant with God. That atoning blood is a contractual legal seal. I know the Holy Spirit seals us, but it's the blood covenant that enjoins us, and you can walk through these days ahead that are coming down the pike, you could walk in covenant with God and be the heir of a covenant that has already gone into force because the testator, Jesus, has died, and therefore the covenant is in full force. And yet on this side of eternity, we have a first fruits. We have a down payment. We have the earnest of the Spirit, meaning just a little foretaste of the eternal inheritance that we have that is on the way. But yet, or what we have in this life is more than enough to live in the abundant life in spite of what's going on in the world. And you and I should get in on that covenant, walk through the door of Christ, come into the mutual agreement, be sealed in the blood, filled with the Holy Spirit, have our God encounters along the way. And you know, the only, what I noticed, each time I had a God encounter, it was either on my knees in prayer or going to a place where the presence of God was so strong with the missionary. Twice on my knees before a couch praying and once being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing with the right people right now. There's something to be said about going into your closet, shutting the door, and entering into prayer. That's where our encounters with God really come from. And he can encounter us anywhere. He encountered Paul the Apostle on the road to Damascus to go kill people. He encountered him right there. God can encounter us anywhere. Maybe he encountered you in an unusual place. Don't forget those encounters. I've got to get rolling because something very special is happening today, and I want to get there. We will not be on this radio broadcast all week next week. We're going to be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. We will be filming every evening starting Tuesday. So Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we will be filming on Facebook and YouTube our services in the evening. 
If we find out a way to do it in the morning services, we will. We're excited about the Feast of Tabernacles. I have received the atonement. I pray that you have as well. I stand before God guiltless, and I praise him for what he did. And my faith will never shake that loose. Praise the Lord. And don't you let it either. Let no man steal your crown. So, having said that, God bless you. Enjoy the moment in spite of the storm. Know who you are. Know who Christ is in you. Have a great week. We'll see you about 10 or 11 days from now. Our Omega radio is down right now. I could only broadcast live through it. It's okay. I'll see you in 11 days, Lord willing. I'm going up to the feast to honor the king who has made an atonement for me. I'm going to sit at his feet to learn. Patricia Joy Xavier, a seasoned saint of God Almighty, she'll be speaking not tomorrow Saturday, but the following Saturday. She's got a word from the Lord that is going to change people's lives. She's been spending all this time preparing, preparing. She's got the word. Next Saturday, next Friday, a week from today, Pastor Ken Maddox from Gateway Christian Fellowship. I met with him about three or four weeks ago. He's so excited. He's going to be bringing the word next Friday night. Next Sunday, not this coming Sunday, but next Sunday, I'm bringing the word. And I'm also bringing the word this Monday. And I've got some word locked up in me that I'm ready to release. And then during the week, Pastor Kevin Honeycutt, Pastor David Obenauer, Pastor Melissa Fletcher, Pastor Ken Wagner, Pastor Michael Villarin, and the saints of God, that's just in the realm of teaching and word and instruction and the laying forth of biblical strategy for what's coming down the pike, let alone the mysteries that shall be unveiled and revealed to whosoever has an ear to hear. Oh, we're going to get locked in with God, and we're going to stay locked in. And the Lord's going to put a hedge all around us, and we're going to spend time with God. And whatever happens in the following year after that, my experience for the last 31 years of, ex- of doing the Feast of Tabernacles, it goes from glory to glory. The blessing, the, it's just so rich. Spiritual wealth, richness, the blessing of spirit, soul, and body of God. You need to be at a Feast of Tabernacles somewhere. You need to come out for seven days out of this sin-sick world, and you need to hit, hook up with God where his spirit is going to be. His presence. And you need, to, you need to separate that time to the Lord. You need to give that time to God. You've given enough time to men. Give that time to God. Enter into the feast and honor the Lord. Don't let anything take precedence over that. There's nothing worthy of forfeiting this week with God. Because the world is going to change. And you want to be on the right side of this moment. I, I adjure you. I beg you to put God first in his feast. 
And it's going to be something special. That's between you and the Lord. Make sure you have his mind, though. Make sure you have his heart. It's going to be a powerful time. I wouldn't want to miss a second of it. I don't want to miss any single part of it. I want to be at every meeting. I want to hear every conversation. I want to sit down with men and women of God and break bread. I want to leave the world behind. I want to get involved in what God is doing. I want to hear God in my brothers and sisters. I want to spend time. I want this week to be a holy, holy week. I'm going to do it with whomsoever will. I hope you're going to do it as well. Okay? Having said that, I've got to run. I'll see you in about 11 days, but I'll see you during the evening as well, by the way. All week next week, you go to Omega Radio on Facebook. Go to Vincent Xavier on YouTube. And by the way, if you have a Feast of Tabernacles offering that you want to send to the ministry, remember that offering, that beautiful, best of the best offering. If you're ready to send that to the ministry, you could do it by going to one of our websites. You could contact me. You could get a mailing address. If you have an, a, an offering for the Lord, for his feast, and he shares it with the ministers of the altar, no doubt about it. Make sure you do. Make sure you get your offering in. That's an awesome thing. I've said enough. I'm going to go. God bless you. The Lord bless you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Shalom.